You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Interior, the morgue. The medical examiner stands over a body on the table. Two grizzled detectives stand nearby. The ME pulls back the sheet and her nose wrinkles. She takes a deep sniff and now the detective's nose wrinkles. You don't smell that? She asks. Smell what? Bitter almonds. This person was poisoned with cyanide. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Here's another topic voted on by our supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Great folks like Marissa, Linda, Wallet, Pager Keys, Oil of Hope, and Darlene, who have a nose for good content. The nose knows, but we need to know our noses a little better. Their usefulness is as plain as the nose on your face. And if you think I've sniffed out things you never knew you never knew, you'd be right on the nose. Okay, I'll stop that now. Noses keep us safe from things like spoiled food and gas leaks. Tell us when our personal hygiene game is lacking. Filter dust, bacteria, and other detrimental detritus from the air. They're even the reason we're practically the only primate that swims. Our nostrils face downward rather than forward. So how do invisible qualities in the air turn into sensations in our brains, like fresh bread, cut grass, and dirty diapers? Your ability to smell comes from specialized sensory cells, called olfactory sensory neurons, found in a small patch of tissue high inside the nose that connects directly to your brain. Each olfactory neuron has one odor receptor whose job it is to take in microscopic molecules constantly being released by substances all around us. Once the neurons detect the molecules, they send messages to your brain. There are more smells in the environment than there are receptors, And any given molecule can stimulate a combination of receptors, creating a unique representation in the brain, what we think of as any one particular smell. They say we eat first with our eyes, but we taste with our nose. Sure, the tongue gets all the glory and the taste buds do their bit, but they can only detect if something is sweet, salty, bitter, sour, or umami, a savoriness like you find in Parmesan anchovies and mushrooms. The actual flavor notes come from our sense of smell, with a little help from the other senses. Without smell, foods taste bland and have little or no flavor. Smells reach the olfactory sensory neurons through two pathways, through the nostrils, as I mentioned before, and through a channel that connects the roof of the throat to the nose. Chewing food releases aromas that follow that second path. If the channel is blocked, like when your nose is stuffed up, 
hello incoming allergy season, odors can't reach those sensory cells. As a result, you lose much of the input that you need to enjoy a food's flavor. If you've ever eaten on a plane, and hopefully someday I'll be on a flight fancier than plain Utz potato chips, you probably didn't enjoy your food all that much. It's not that the food itself was bland. It probably had more salt and seasoning than food intended for non-flying consumption. Although the plane's cabin is pressurized, it's still less than you would experience at sea level. That lower pressure encourages fluids in your body to move upward, which makes your nasal cavity swell, decreasing the surface area engaged in making that sallow chicken breast and overcooked broccoli taste better than it looks. Some people, and they have my sincerest sympathy, are born without an olfactory bulb, the organ believed to be essential for the perception of smell. About 5% of the population is anosmic, meaning they cannot smell. While doing a bit of brain imaging, as you do, a group of researchers realized that one of their test subjects in the control group had no apparent olfactory bulb, but somehow that person had scored in the normal range for a standardized smell test. They discovered that 0.6% of all women can smell perfectly fine without an olfactory bulb. This rises to 4.3% in left-handed women. I literally don't know what to make of that information, but it's a good time to remind everyone correlation does not equal causation. But only female test subjects had a chance of smelling without an olfactory bulb. The gents were completely out of luck. The loss of smell and therefore taste has come up rather a lot more in the past two years than probably our whole lives put together, as it can be a symptom of COVID. It also graphs exactly, I'm told, to the number of incoming calls to the Yankee Candle complaint line. It's not uncommon for a virus to get between you and some vanilla fields or clean cotton, but for some people, it can take years for their sense of smell to come back online, if it comes back at all. Many develop parosmia, an inability of the brain to properly identify a smell, during the early stages of recovery as the sense of smell works its way back. Smells are badly distorted and twisted, always into something repulsive, described as burnt, foul, rotten, or sewagey especially when tasting coffee, meat, and chocolate, prompting me to inquire, with full dedication to scientific inquiry and method, well, what's the point of living then? Researchers believe that the damaged olfactory neurons are slowly regenerating or repairing, and the distortions are a result of some crossed wires in the olfactory bulb. Exactly how this happens, though, remains a mystery. Why this often happens during pregnancy? I didn't look. Not really into baby stuff, sorry. But there's always a silver lining if we look for it. And sure enough, there are situations where being anosmic would really come in handy. Take space travel, for example. Smell can be a real problem in a ship or space station. You have a finite amount of air, and it's not like you can open a window if chemicals in your experiment are off-gassing or someone rips an eggy fart. The International Space Station is, according to one source, 
smelly, noisy, messy, and awash in shed skin cells. And that's with NASA being really vigilant about smells in space. Every single thing, no matter how small, is rigorously tested to see how it will do in a potentially hazardous environment. That job falls to the veritable army of professionals at NASA's White Sands Test Facility in New Mexico, and for our purposes today, the Materials Flight Acceptance Workforce. The MFA analyzes the space suitability of different materials to make sure nothing will burst into flames, spew toxic gas, or do anything else that you wouldn't want to have happen in an awkwardly shaped submarine falling around the Earth. And that includes smells. NASA is concerned with way more than simple stinkiness. Bad smells are distractions and draw focus from the astronauts' very expensive missions. But beyond the comfort of the astronauts, which is important, unnecessary smells, they're called, need to be kept at a minimum to ensure that the astronauts can smell things they shouldn't be smelling, like an ammonia leak or the distinct scent of overheating wiring or circuits, just before they release the magic blue smoke of failure. Our first line of detection is our human sense of smell, says Susanna Harper, the Material Flight Acceptance Standards Testing Manager at White Sands. So even though we have worked with our companies, and there are certain types of detectors on board, in the end, we know that the human sense of smell is our most sensitive detector for those hazardous smells. Every item on every payload sent to the ISS must pass the smell test. Introducing the odor panel. Five volunteers go bloodhound on everything in the astronauts' habitable space. But this is NASA, after all, so they smell scientifically, not like you or I deciding whether or not we can get one more day out of that pair of jeans. The smell is captured in an air chamber, then injected through a syringe, directly into masks worn by the volunteers. Then they rank the smells on a scale of 0 to 4. Anything that scores 2.5 or higher is grounded. The panel's most decorated member is George Aldrich, a self-titled nasal knot. This chemical specialist has been sniffing around NASA for over 40 years and more than 900 test sessions. Even though he's done more sessions than literally anyone in the world, he still has to qualify for the panel every four months by passing what is called the 10-bottle test. Applicants have to correctly select the three bottles of 10 that have no smell and correctly identify each of the seven smells. Like you might get in a low-budget knockoff of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, they are musky, minty, floral, ethereous, camphoraceous, pungent, and putrid. Speaking of musk, anybody remember the perfume Malibu Musk from the early 90s? At me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, if it all came flooding back to you when I said that. Hell, at me if you have no idea what I'm talking about. And never be shy about sending me a direct message or an email or a message through the website. I love hearing from you guys. Now, you might think you need a big nose to do 900 space-smelling sessions, something in a nice Adrian Brody or Sarah Jessica Parker. But according to Aldrich, size don't matter. 
Aldrich was a member of the NASA Fire Department at White Sands when his boss told him about the odor panel. I had no idea, he says now. I just thought I was doing something great for the astronauts. Since then, he and the other members of the odor panel have smelled all sorts of materials, including some truly awful bits, apparently. According to Aldrich, Velcro being pulled apart gives off a very unpleasant odor. Pardon me a moment, I've just got to go and get something from the sewing table. For science. You'll get no complaints from Aldrich, though. He's happy and proud to stick his nose into the astronauts' business. And they're happy in return. Aldrich has received the Silver Snoopy Award, which is given by the flight crew to non-flight support staff who significantly contributed to the human spaceflight program to ensure flight safety and mission success. Silver Snoopy winners get a certificate and a silver lapel pin with the classic comic dog dressed like an astronaut, which has been taken up into space, complete with a letter of authenticity to prove it. So what if you're in space and you do have a fully functional sense of smell? What about space itself? Does space have a smell? I mean, it can't, right? It's a void, a vacuum, devoid of air, the definition of nothing. Well, roll me in flour and fry me for two to three minutes on each side, because space does have a distinct odor. Hold up, you say. How are they smelling space? It's not like you can do the B-movie sci-fi thing of taking off your helmet five seconds after you land and not die. You'd die on the double. While we can't smell outer space directly, we can smell the things that come back from outer space. Spacesuits, for example, smell differently after they've returned from the void than they did before takeoff. Astronauts returning from space claim that their suits smell, in a word, burnt. The lingering scent is said to be acrid and metallic, reminding the astronauts of welding fumes or heavily charred meat. So how do you pick up a smell in the vacuum of space? Scientists believe that it could come from polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, high-powered particles that are released into space during the nuclear reactions that power stars. But TIG-welded porterhouse isn't the only aroma space can have. The universe is massive, like really, really big, filled with as yet uncountable different elements and compounds. Most notably to me, the dust cloud at the center of the Milky Way contains large amounts of ethyl formate. Here on Earth, that's the compound that gives raspberries their flavor. And if ethyl formate is created from a reaction between an acid and an alcohol, it smells like rum. That would be a terrible tease to the astronauts, though, because booze is not allowed in space. Not for the American astronauts, anyway. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist or even rocket adjacent to make scratch with your sniffer. You could work with ham. Cinco Hotas, 
pardon for any mispronunciation, a 142-year-old company in southwest Spain specializes in traditional production methods of their acorn-fed Iberian ham. Part of their quality control procedure requires a team of specially trained workers to smell every ham before it can be sold, and they could use a break. It's not that the process is necessarily very difficult. Poke the meat, take a sniff, make sure the ham cuts mustard. The trouble is the sheer volume of hams to handle. One calador, as they're called, Manuel Vega Dominguez, who's been with their quality control department since 1998, works year-round by himself, smelling around 200 hands, hand clap emoji, a hand clap emoji, day. But as the year wanes close to the Christmas holidays, his ham load quadruples, and five seasonal sniffers are brought in. Each ham gets four sniffs, for a total of 3,200 sniffs per day. Dominguez says he's pushed to the limit of human possibility, but when duty calls, he and his nose will be there. I will find a way to sniff 801, he told the Wall Street Journal. Perhaps 802 is possible. If your intrigue and appetite are piqued and you're thinking, I'm gonna get one of those hams, you might wanna check your bank account first. All the expertise, care, and time that go into creating these Iberian hams mean you can pay as much as $1,400 for a 14-pound bone-in ham, plus shipping. If that's too rich for your blood, you can spend a much more reasonable $32.50 for three ounces. Back to the Piggly Wiggly with me, then. Since you're probably not going to be spending money on Iberian ham today, Maybe go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch where I've uploaded a design in support of Ukraine with the important part of the message from the Snake Island defenders to the Russian warship. But don't worry, it's in Ukrainian, so it's not, I guess, rude to wear it in public for most people. And every cent I get off of that and that much again in my own money is going to the Ukraine Red Cross. Thanks to everyone who's bought a shirt, and it's not just shirts, it's all the different swag that Tee Public will put that image on, so stickers, mugs, whatever. You can go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. And I want to thank everyone who shares the show, whether telling a friend or boosting social media, particularly folks like Eric Parfait, Richard Enriquez, and Cheryl Block-Kraus, and the folks that review the show. Like Yonatan Leon, who left a review on Podchaser, which is like the IMDb of podcasts and a great place to review a show if your app doesn't have that feature. And he said, I was racking my brain trying to think of a comment that could express how amazing Moxie's podcast truly is. I got bubkiss, smiley face. Can you read an emoticon on the air? Yes, Yonatan, I can. Everything was already said about her amazing voice, great sense of humor, and interesting and often surprising facts. I love this podcast. Easily five stars. We'll leave you one correction, though, from The Wire. You evacuate a building. You don't evacuate people. To evacuate a person is to give that person an enema. Big fan, have as nice a day as you've given me. Okay, Yonatan, I love being corrected because it means that I'm learning but I don't know what you're correcting me about. So hit me up on the social media and let me know what I miss said because precision of language, very important to me. But now I'm just thinking about like, why have I not written more about enemas on the show? It's really quite surprising if you knew me personally. <laughs>
because I like weird stuff, not because, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> yeah, Lana says I should probably stop too. That's all a bit posh for me, so let's go to something of considerably more down market. Armpits. They stink. We would like them to stink less. To make a product that palliates your pits, you gotta smell the before and the after. Meet Barry Druitt, who ironically could afford to buy a bunch of that Iberian ham thanks to your sweat stains. Druitt is co-owner, COO, and chief scientist at Princeton Consumer Research, as well as their odor guru. As testament to the fact that there is no such thing as an unskilled job, Druitt says, it took me about a year to get it up to an art form. Using a little paper cone, like the cups on the side of a water cooler, his job is to sniff armpits, breath, and feet, to rate how malodorous they are on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being effectively no discernible smell, and 10 being call the Hague to convene a tribunal. Druitt flies all over the world to do this for different companies and has become an international connoisseur of bad smells. Bad breath apparently has distinct styles in different parts of the world, and not just from the food we eat. Flaming Hot Cheetos in the U.S., Black Pudding in Scotland, and Tandoori Chicken in India, for example. Expert smell testers have to ignore these odors, along with things like pets, cigarettes, by far the most obstructive smell, and such like, to focus only on the halitosis caused by bacterial growth in the mouth. Bonus fact, the condition of halitosis was created by Listerine, who wanted people to feel like bad breath was a medical condition and only they could solve it for you. But you may already know that if you have a copy of the Your Brain on Facts book, available both paperback and audiobook. There are not a lot of professional sniffers working, and it's not because it's a job no one wants. Not everyone has the talent. Princeton Consumer Research looks for odor judges by having them smell little jars of synthetic smells. A number of jars are lined up, and the sniffers have to rank them according to how powerful the smell is. If they're successful, they get to do it again to prove that it was skill and not blind luck, before they can move on to full-fledged judge. Out of every 10 applicants, only two or three make it through. A career in smelling carries with it some strange repercussions. Once you've been trained to smell odor, Druitt says, you can't help judging people. I'll be sitting on the tube judging the person next to me from 1 to 10. Plus, you have to be ready to be asked, repeatedly, if you have a foot or body odor fetish by people. While he can't speak for every sniffer, Druitt says adamantly, no, actually I think they're quite gross and the smell's horrendous on some people. It's not all toe jam and bad breath, though. Smell testers are also called upon to undertake more pleasant tasks, like evaluating the smells of perfume and scented soap. And the money can actually be pretty good, with salaries starting around $40,000 going as high as $100,000. Being the owner of the company as well as the chief smeller, Druitt makes about $2 million a year, that's a lot of scratch. I guess you could call it scratch and sniff. I'll see myself out. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's a lot of money in deodorants and antiperspirants, and the big cosmetic companies see the value in getting a product that people will not only buy, but continue to buy. So a client company might send Princeton Research 10 different strengths or concentrations of a deodorant product with a certain active ingredient to find out which one really does the job. That company bases millions of dollars of manufacturing and marketing on what Druitt and his colleagues' noses say. So how does one become a sniffer? Well, you can apparently go to PrincetonConsumer.com, not a sponsor, go to the volunteer section and enter your details. They'll contact you if they have something in your area. Fingers crossed if you're looking for a new career. I look forward to seeing your LinkedIn profile. And a little bonus fact about Druitt, he and his partner were the first gay couple in the UK to have a child together with the aid of a surrogate in 1999 when they welcomed twins Saffron and Aspen. Ironically and maddeningly, I could find more about Druitt's personal life than his professional life. He and his now ex-husband lived together after the divorce so they could raise their five children. They also live with Druitt's boyfriend and Saffron's ex-boyfriend, who is dating Druitt's ex-husband. And I guess it would be asking too much for British papers with the word daily in their name not to cover that stuff. Have you ever smelled roast turkey and immediately flashed back to the kids' table at your grandma's house surrounded by your cousins? Or catch a whiff of Drakkar Noir and be forced to confront the mixed bag of memories that is your first boyfriend? Last year, several studies looked closely at the connection between odor and memory. One Northwestern Medicine study published in Progress in Neurobiology identified a neural basis for how the brain enables odors to trigger powerful memories. And researchers from the University of California at Irvine discovered specific types of neurons within the memory center of the brain that are responsible for acquiring new associative memories i.e. memories triggered by unrelated things like an odor. Our sense of smells, stronger emotional memory connection than other sensory experiences, seems to be down to the privileged access of the central brain structures of the olfactory system to the limbic system structures like the amygdala and hippocampus, which are involved with regulating emotions and emotional memories. A 2010 study published in the American Journal of Psychology, found that memories associated with smells were not necessarily more accurate, but tended to be more emotionally evocative. Typically, the most salient odors are the ones that are infrequently experienced. So when they're smelled, they have a specific association. And these are the ones that we usually initially experience at a younger age when we're forming more memories anyway. But it's worth mentioning that everyone's experience with odor is idiosyncratic and personal, like how you don't know if everybody else sees colors the same way you do. 
actual olfactory triggers can vary enormously from person to person. So I might smell fried food wafting on a crisp breeze and be transported back to the state fair, but none of my sisters, of which I have five, would have the same memory triggered. Regardless of why it happens, we can use the connection between smell and memory to our advantage. An exercise to help parosmic people regain their sense of smell is called smell training. Researchers believe that systematically exercising the olfactory neurons stimulates growth repair much in the same way that physiotherapy promotes injury healing. The technique was pioneered in Germany and involves actively sniffing and concentrating on different smells at least twice a day for several months. In a recent study of older people, smell training was shown to not just improve their olfactory function, but also their verbal function and overall well-being. What's really interesting is in this experiment, the control group were given Sudoku puzzles to complete twice a day, suggesting that the smell training was more effective on these attributes than doing Sudoku. It's worth saying that episodic memories or memories of specific events from a first-person point of view are where the sense of smell is best connected to memories, says Teresa L. White, PhD, professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Lemoyne College in Syracuse. Odors are not very good in terms of other types of memory. For example, if I gave you seven words to remember and seven smells to remember, there is no question you would do better with the list of words. White explains that associative memory can work for any sense and smell is no exception. Imagine you always relax in a hot lavender scented bubble bath at the end of the day. You'll come to associate the smell of lavender with the feeling of relaxation. This means that over time, when you smell lavender and you're not in the bath, you'll still have the feeling of relaxation. On the topic of lavender, Show of hands if you find its smell relaxing. Now me, data point of one, I don't, but you know, lots of people do. So it was a flagship scent back in the days when I raised goats and made goat milk soap and skincare products for a living. Customers would always say to me, they wanted lavender because it relaxes you, as if it were aerosolized Xanax, to which I always shrugged and said, I think whatever smell you like is relaxing. I never really gone in for aromatherapy, but should I? Is it scientifically supportable? There's no question that aromatherapy is popular. The market value of essential oils worldwide is expected to top 27 billion with a B dollars this year. Europe accounts for the largest share of global essential oil market, with the Asian Pacific region and North America tied for second. But popular doesn't mean good. One need only turn on Top 40 radio to see that. Does aromatherapy actually do something? Or is it all just the placebo effect? Not to take away from the placebo effect and the mind's incredible ability to change the body, that's just a topic for another day. In a word, maybe? Research on the effectiveness of aromatherapy, you know, the therapeutic use of essential oils extracted from plants, is pretty limited. However, some studies have shown that aromatherapy might have health benefits like relief of anxiety and depression and improved sleep. But no definitive causal relationship has been established. Some essential oil manufacturers make products that can be taken internally 
but research on the safety and efficacy of this method is even more limited. Many essential oils have been shown to be safe when used as directed, but essential oils for aromatherapy aren't regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, and many that are safe for humans can be harmful to your pets, especially to cats. If you've got a kitten, stay clear of wintergreen, sweet birch, citrus, pine, liang liang, peppermint, cinnamon, pennyroyal, clove, eucalyptus, and tea tree, just to name a few. I could have made that list shorter, but I love cats. You especially don't want to use these in applications that put the oil out into the air. Your pussy will thank you. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. It's a classic feature of crime dramas and documentaries, the telltale scent of bitter almond associated with death by cyanide-containing compound. But as an investigator, you wouldn't want to go around relying on it. The genes needed to detect the odor of cyanide are recessive and carried on the X chromosome, so women are more likely than men to be able to smell it since we have two X chromosomes. Remember, you can always find the source links and the full script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.